And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Let me turn on the microphone there. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are live from the bunker. My name is Jason Hunt. I am the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me, and we are glad you're here. If you're here with us live, we're broadcasting to Odyssey, Facebook, and YouTube. And today, we are going to be talking comics with two people who have been involved in it in a long while, for a long while. Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan are our guests. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Good to be here. Greetings, people of Earth. <laughs> so let's let's just dive right into it, because uh, for those for those who are not comic book aficionados, they may have gone to the movies and seen one of your creations, uh, the Batman villain Bane. And that is, uh, I guess, maybe the most well-known out of all of the stuff that you guys have done. I mean, Chuck, you had a run on The Punisher. Uh, you guys both uh, did work at DC and Marvel, and you've got your own stuff going on. But let's start with Bane. Let's, let's do some introductions here and kind of establish your bona fides, as it were. Uh, tell, who wants to start? What do, what do you guys want people to know about you? Let's start there. Well, age before beauty, so we'll go with this guy here. <laughs> uh, I, I've been in the business 35 plus years. Uh, so is Graham, but he started younger than I did. Uh, he was just a kid, just out of short pants. But uh, yeah, 35 years. Uh, I'm the most prolific comic book writer of American comic books with over 40,000 pages, over 2,000 comic books written, published, and uh, worked on everything. Batman, Punisher, The Simpsons, SpongeBob SquarePants, Conan the Barbarian, you name them, I wrote them. And Graham? Yeah, uh, I, I think that number's wrong. I think you've been in here longer than 35 years because I've been in it 38 years. Well, okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think we came in around the same time. I got to mentally uh, update my bio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've 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 worked for Marvel, DC, Eclipse, um, uh, King Feature Syndicate. I illustrated uh, newspaper strips for uh, Rex Morgan, MD, and the Phantom, and uh, illustrated Batman, Superman, uh, the X Men, Fantastic Four, Spider Man. You know, a uh, lot of stuff for all the major companies. Uh, done advertising work as well, storyboards, um, and then self-publishing. So the the comic strips that was that was one that uh, I was not aware of when uh, when I was looking through all of the stuff. You've done the Phantom, you've done Rex Morgan. How did you get involved in that, Graham? Well, <clears throat> around 1998. Um, no, actually, it was, it was around 2000. Uh, things were changing in comics. Uh, all the contacts that we had uh, at DC were either uh, leaving or being fired. Uh, I didn't like the direction comics were going, and I had self-published uh, a book called Monster Island, and I tried to get that syndicated, uh, it, like the old um, Buzz Sawyer-type strips that Roy Crane did. Uh, and uh, so I sent it to all the all the major syndicates uh, uh, that were still around, <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I got the same universal response. We love it. It's great. We can't sell it. We can't sell a continuity strip. Uh, but King Features called me specifically and said, we have an opening coming up on Rex, Rex Morgan MD. Would you like to take that? And uh, I had seen the strip in my local paper, and it was horrible. Uh, so I said, um, but the thing had been around since 1948, so I figured it had to have something interesting. So I, I told him, send me send me copies of the strip in its heyday. And he did, and um, the stuff looked great. I could see why it was one of the most important strips to have in newspapers back in the 50s and 60s. So I took that over, and I, but I told him I, what I really wanted to do was The Phantom. Uh, he didn't have any openings on that, but it never hurts to let them know what you want. Right. Because a month later, I got a call, and he says, we got an opening on The Phantom, on the Sunday Phantom. Do you want it? I said, yeah. So that's how I got on both those strips. And you mentioned uh, the the direction that comics were going, and Chuck, you've you've talked about this a number of times, even back in, I believe it was 2014, wrote about this, and the 
the direction with the politics and the and the the different kinds of ideas that were starting to show up in comics that's all see that surprised me that it was that far back that that anybody was addressing such because for a lot of people the 2016 election was the was the switch being flipped but it, you know 20, 2014 that's that's a year and a year and a half before Trump even decided he was going to run how far back does this actually go where where politics becomes a problem here because you and Denny O'Neill had a run on Batman for a long while you guys worked yeah. together on that and you're polar opposites absolutely well the biggest change and the, and the one Graham saw and I saw as well was that um, our editors that we worked with who were professional and they were interested in quality, uh, they began to retire or go on to other careers. And they were replaced by careerists who were concerned with staying in comics with their own power base in comics, their own fiefdom, and they were indifferent to the quality of the work. They didn't really seem to care about the end product or the audience. And I, I, I know Graham sensed that I sense that as well. It's why I eventually left DC uh, because they just didn't seem to be interested in the medium anymore or, or promoting DC comics. And shortly after that came the politics. Uh, when I left CrossGen, I was told I could come back to DC as long as I apologized to an editor for something I said in an interview. It was purely political statement, my own political beliefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a hold of the editor and said, I'm not going to apologize. Can I come back to D.C.? And, and he, you know, said, OK. Uh, now, but that, to be clear, to be clear, when Chuck says he got a hold of the editor, he means he got a hold of the editor. <laughs> he had him in a headlock. <laughs> but I said, I said, I'm not going to apologize. I still believe what I said. I didn't say anything wrong. I didn't say it's my own personal political belief. It's, yeah. it's none of your business. So they let me come back, but you know, pretty soon the, the blacklists came down. Uh, they don't call them blacklists; they just say you can't work here anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They don't even say that; they just say we have nothing for you. Well, well, well. Tom Brevoort literally said, uh, "Chuck's not blacklisted, but he'll never work at Marvel again." <laughs> so, so, like so many things in life, Tom Brevoort didn't understand what blacklist meant. Yeah, yeah. Now well, uh, we do have a no we do have a comment uh, a question in the chat from Sci-Fi Snob. What did Chuck say? So what was what was it that got you uh, on the outs? I, I objected to a, a Green Lantern story that was de dealt with AIDS. Uh, I, I thought it was trite, uh, and that's all I said about it. I didn't say you know. Of course, they turned it into homophobia. Right. So I had to apologize to an openly gay editor, and I said. You know me. I'm never going to apologize to you. Oh, that uh, guy. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, I'm not going to apologize to you. I never made an issue out of your, you know, sexual preference when we worked together or anything like that. It never made any difference to me. But, you know, I thought that story was trite and, and tired. It had nothing to do with the subject matter. So there you go. So while you were at DC, both of you, uh, you were able to uh, do a little creating. Let's talk about Bane for a minute because he's been in animated. He's been in two movies now. Uh, probably one of the most popular villains that Batman has in his rogues gallery. So how did that come about? Because you guys were doing your run. Where did, where did the idea for Bane begin? Uh, well, we, we were doing the Nightfall event and we... Denny O'Neill wanted a villain, a new villain, to, to break Batman's back. And he felt that we should do enough work on him that he'll come, we'll come out the other end with a lasting character, a, mm -hmm. a permanent member of Batman's rogues gallery. And um, I thought this was like insurmountable. Uh, how are you going to do this? How do you create a character and assure yourself that he's going to be popular, that the readers are going to respond to him? And it was so important because the, the Nightfall stunt was two years of continuity, and it all centered around this villain. Uh, and, and I kept talking about how difficult it was going to be, because how do you, you know, purposely create a popular 
comic book character. Most popular comic book characters are created by accident, you right. know, or repetition. You know, <laughs> I mean, Wolverine was a one-time Hulk villain. You know, I never thought I'd ever see him again. Uh, and so Denny said, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, then you do it. So he sent me home, and I knew Graham, Graham was going to be drawing the first story of this character. So I called Graham, and, and we batted some stuff around. Graham came up with the Luchadora look. He had a number of suggestions. I did a lot of thinking out loud. And then, uh, you know, I just, I just went to work on the character and threw everything at him to, you know, try to assure that he would have lasting appeal. I had no idea how lasting it would be. So ha- have, you, have you both, either of you, kept up with the different portrayals of Bane over the years? I mean, there's, you know, there's an animated version now in the Harley Quinn show. Uh, we've gotten Bane in two movies. We've got the, you know, um, the Schumacher movie and one of Christopher Nolan's movies. Has the character been fairly faithful over the years to what you guys originally created and set up? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a hard no on that. I mean, uh, I, I, I haven't followed Bane in any of the comics because if Chuck didn't write it, and I didn't draw it, it isn't Bane to me. Uh, so you know, we don't own it. DC owns it, and they can do what they want, um, and they've managed to screw it up, screw up the character. We had a, we had a shot at, at bringing him back into um, um, his, his orbit, if you will, uh, on Bane Conquest, uh, but DC did everything they could to not promote it, so um, it sort of like hung out there. Uh, and we had left all kinds of great little um, Easter eggs about where we wanted to go with this, with the whole idea of making Bane the the intelligent villain that he used to be, uh, and, and the, the planner, the tactician. Um, and um, we even were t- bringing in uh, apocalyptic weapons and, and stuff like that. And the, the setup was to make Bane the Doctor Doom of the DC Universe. Hmm. And I think we did that nicely in Bane Conquest, but, you know, again, uh, it, it just got left hanging. Uh, they just, they decided they were going to promote uh, that Tom King uh, City of Bane crap uh, instead. So he got all the promotional money and we got bupkis. One of the things that has come up in various conversations I've had with authors, uh, you know, writing novels and, and you have the publishers and, and uh, the marketing of same, and it sounds sounds to me here that there's a similar uh, a similar thing. Is there an expectation nowadays for the writers and artists to take a more active role in promoting the work, as opposed to the publisher spending the money, taking the time to promote various different titles, various different stories? different creators, hey, we've got, you know, this this story coming up, written by, drawn by. It does it was there, has there been a shift in who bears the brunt of that load now? It, it, it's always been up to the creator. Uh, comic book marketing is an oxymoron. It's just, it's, they don't market comics. They never have. Yeah. Um, the history of comics is, uh, you know, one day the publishers realized there were no returns on action number one. <laughs> but, wow, we have a hit. The money found them. They didn't promote Superman. Superman found an audience for them. And that's always been the way. They don't do anything. In the, in the 90s, when both Graham and I were still there, when there was a dip in sales, DC fired two of their marketing guys and hired a cover editor. I mean, that was so tone deaf as to what was going on. It was like, hire two more marketing guys yeah. and have a plan. Right. And, and it was kind of comical in the 2000s when Random House took over DC's uh, book distribution. How horrified Random House is, is how DC ran marketing and sales and distribution. <laughs> it was like amateur night. Now, so. a, a follow-up here. Sci-Fi Snob's asking, do you guys like the promotion side of things? Do you? Because I talked to John Delancey one time about alien voices that was the radio theater stuff that he and leonard moy had set up and he said he would love to do it again as long as he was just acting because 
it turned into him being a DVD salesman at, at conventions. He didn't want to do that side of it. And there are certain creators, authors, illustrators, who don't want to mess with the promotion side of things. Is that is that something you guys dive into with enthusiasm, or is this just kind of a necessary evil? Oh, I do. I dive into it because uh, I have a horse in the race. Uh, you know, I have a product that I care about and that I own. And it behooves me to get that word out uh, so that more people will see it. Uh, the... Um, the flip side of, of the first question uh, is, is that uh, where's the incentive for me to promote uh, a Batman comic or a Green Lantern comic? I don't own that. And, 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 and it's really up to them to move it. That's their job. They pay us very little. We work really hard. They could at least try to sell the shit out of that stuff, but they don't. You know, When it comes to publishing my own work, then yeah, all all bets are off. I'm 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 doing shows. I'm 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 streaming myself. Uh, I'm I'm on social media every single day pushing it because again, you know, uh, it, I've got that horse in that race. How has? Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chuck. Yeah, I mean Graham's really good at that. I mean he's become one of the you know crowdfunding kings, and uh, it's it's fantastic. I can't do it. I don't have the, you know. I, the the difference is when Graham's creating something, it's like a feature film rollout because he's got this one project and he's pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. I'm all over the freaking map. <laughs> I don't have time to promote everything I write because I'm doing so many different things for so many different people. I, I leave it up to them to promote it. But Graham's become, uh, you know, he's my hero. <laughs> comes to promoting this stuff. It's amazing what he's done. Now, is, is that... Um... You, you talked about you know having having lots of different things going on because um, you've done the, you've got the Ask Chuck Dixon videos where you're at, you're responding to uh, questions on social media. Graham, you're doing a lot of promotion. I see on on Facebook, on Twitter. You've got you know you all have your indie comics projects. Has social media changed a lot of the dynamic? as far as who's doing what and how they're doing it because, you know, promoting on social, we use social media to, you know, here's the link to our show. Here's the link to our channel. We don't really engage in a lot of drama. You know, we try to avoid that, but has social media changed things for the better, for the worse, just different. I think it's just different. Uh, I think it's an oxymoron, too, because there's not a lot of social aspect of it. Uh, there's there, there, We're being gatekept by uh, algorithms, mm. uh, uh, particularly on, on Facebook. Uh, you know, I've got 5,000 friends. I'll post a link, and as soon as a link goes up, that link is mitigated down. Uh, and maybe, maybe of that 5,000, 200 will see it. And of that 200... It's it's usually the people that engage regularly. Right. So I've already got them, you know, so they're constantly, unfortunately, inundated with my promotional stuff where the people I'm trying to reach that haven't seen it don't see it. In fact, on my last one, uh, the Chinoo, uh I had promoted it every single day for like two weeks and Chuck hadn't seen it yet. Wow, and, and we're and we're in some form of Facebook communication every day. Every day, yeah, yeah. And I didn't see it. Social yeah. media is alive. <laughs> I know we've had our run-ins where you know it, I remember when the word first came out that the algorithm was dialing everybody back because they want you to pay to promote to yourself. And I'm like, well, if these people already follow our page then they're they're actively you know they're saying yeah they're opting in yes i want to see this stuff i shouldn't have to pay for them to see it when they've already said yes i want to see it you know i should be able to to get out to all of the people who follow the page and the paid promotion goes out to try to find new people to find the page well, i mean Back in the wild and woolly days of the 90s and the 2000s, before the algorithms, before the gatekeepers, I mean, I had a message board. 
And <clears throat> I used the message board. The whole point of having the message board was to draw the sales of my books together, to brand me. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that because there was nobody standing in the way saying, well, only these people will see it and these people won't. Right. And, you know, I wish we could go back to those days. It was a level playing field. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they've got to do something. They've got to stop treating these people like common carriers and start treating them like publishers. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, e even if you pay for yeah. the promotional stuff, because I've done it. <laughs> yeah. You, you, the people you want to see it don't see it. There is right. absolutely no kickback. There's no discernible kickback from from paying for it. So, I mean, if if what they said was if you paid for and you, it, and they always tell you, well, 10,000 people will see it if you pay the $20, whatever. Well, these 10,000 people must be blind because uh, they, <laughs> they, they I didn't see them showing up, either friending me or or participating in any of my projects. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I did, you know, on, on my novels, when I was promoting my self-published novels on Amazon, um, I paid a few times to Facebook. We're going to reach 20,000 people. We're going to reach 30,000. Right. Never saw the needle move. Nope. If, if I sent out 100 private messages, I saw the needle move. Yes. No. That's the no. only way around it, but it's laborious. Oh, they make it harder all the time. And when you want to share something with a group now, you got to go individually. you got to share each one individually. They yeah. do not want you using their platform to promote yourself unless they no. get some money out of it. Yeah. Now, and and uh, they'll, only, they'll limit you to 50 right a day yeah do you do you utilize newsletters then email marketing and that sort of thing or is it just basically you're relying on word of mouth at this point no i, I use email marketing and uh, uh, an email list is king the yeah. bigger you can build that the better i mean yeah you're dealing with attrition of numbers but still uh, you can reach them directly you know, you have sign-up lists, like before you launch projects, you get people to sign up for that stuff, give them extra benefits for being on the list, and then now they're in your database. Right. Um, and that's a great way to to reach your, your fan base directly. Yeah, that's what the videos do for me on YouTube. They, they you know have an email. You can email your questions to me. And that's done more to build my uh, email list than anything else. Because that's the only, like Graham said, it's the only thing you can rely on. You know they got it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the chat, we've got uh, Keely here. Nerdit's newsstand is here. Uh, Kami Mark has shown up. Uh, Keely Chow, what's going on? Eastland says a website could draw people in. Paying for promotion is usually a scam. They do metrics and could say, or money back if you don't get these results, but they don't do that. I mean, you don't get the money back if you don't. If you if you don't get the results you're looking for, then you know that's. Uh, you know, why throw good money after bad? But it's, it, it goes back to that. What was that saying? You know, half of the money I spent on advertising is, is wasted. I just don't know which half. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's true. And it's, it's, true. it's almost like, cause we've talked about it. We're on all the different, you know, alternate social media platforms or on Odyssey. We're doing all these different things. And my thinking is. You know, if we were to solely rely on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, that puts all of our eggs in this one little basket. And if somebody decides to flip the switch on us and and take us out, we don't have any other means to, to get in touch with anybody. We don't have any other way to get our material out. So it's it's this sort of Damocles that's kind of hanging there. You know, don't, don't, don't trip the algorithms or else type of thing yeah. and it really does feel like social media for the most part is i don't want to say stockholm syndrome or a hostage situation but it's almost like that because you only get to do certain things or else well they change the rules every day i mean literally yeah uh, you can't keep up i know people who are into marketing with and they're it geniuses and they have to race to keep up every single day because it's always changing. I mean, you know, the only thing we can do, and this is what Graham and I are on here to do, is the only thing you can do is get out of your own neighborhood, you know, yeah. and go on, you know, try to reach audiences that, you know, weren't aware of you or weren't aware of what you were doing. I mean, that's why we're here. That's the beauty of YouTube is that you can cultivate your own audience yeah. and you can reach thousands that way because, 
in 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 this day and age, um, when you're trying to sell comics, uh, you're 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 doing more than selling comics. You're selling yourself as well. Uh, people are willing to back a project if they like you. So it's important that um, uh, that you reach them, that you you connect with them, um, so that they will like you and like your like the products that you're you're putting out. Stan Lee showed us the way. <laughs> yeah, true enough. All right. Well, uh, bearing that in mind, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the stuff that you're working on currently. Uh, the various different campaigns and projects and, and stuff you want people to know about. And that will be on the flip side of this. So everybody stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. That's an interesting question. I think it's a big question. It's a good question. When you need to know, count on Sci-Fi for me to be there asking all of the questions. It's an interesting question <laughs> you're asking. You know, you ask very good questions, <laughs> but you, you ask such a perceptive, it's an excellent question. Now you've put your finger on, <laughs> uh, you've put your finger on exactly the heart of the book here. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi for me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Back live from the bunker with Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan, who have not been idle in the last few years as as far as comics goes. Uh, Chuck, you've been doing a lot with uh, Arc Haven and Arc Tunes and and in the comics gate sphere with uh, with, with Richard Meyer, and you've got the the um, the Expendables. Uh, the Expendables go to hell as one of your projects. And then Graham, I, I uh, let me let me ask this: Comics Gate, being what it is and being perceived as certain things, was that ever a concern going into some of these projects? Graham, you've got a project that's going on now with with is, is the Chinoo in in demand? No, the Chinoo is closed. Chinoo is closed. Okay, the, the Chinoo was already um, um, fulfilled. Okay. All right. So when when you guys started working on all of these projects, I mean, Chuck, you've been working with Vox Day, who's got a reputation, you know, yes. both <laughs> both of you in in Comicsgate, and that's got you know the media portrayal and the reputation that it has, you know, uh, everybody's alt right evil Yahtzees. So how do you how do you deal with those concerns, or are they concerns? Um. Well. I'll, I'll just start off. Um, yeah. They're not a concern for me uh, because I don't care what those, <laughs> what the liberals think uh, of me. Uh, I make no bones about who I am. And as I said, when, when, you know, when trying to sell your product, you sell yourself, you know, you be honest, be the real person you are out there in front and, and people that follow me in my YouTube channel uh, or on the shows that I do and the books I publish know that, um, you know, I'm a caring, nice guy. You know, uh, I, I'm not an ist of, of any type. Uh, and, um, you know, they can paint with that brush all they want. It doesn't make it so. Right. Now, are there bad actors in any movement or, or group? Of course. You know, but you can't judge them all by that uh, guilt by association. And that's what they do. They, uh, you know, I, the first project I did that was connected with that was with Chuck. It was uh, Expendables Go to Hell. And then when I launched the Chinoo, I sent out, you know, all the promotion stuff to friends of mine in the business, so-called friends, you know, colleagues, uh, just asking for a shout out, you know, just, hey, could you share this to your page and, you know, and your fan base, all that. One guy in particular said, no, I can't do that because you're, you're, you're a comics gate. And I said, what are you talking about? What's comics gate? He says, well, you did this project with Richard Myers. I said, I did a work for hire gig with my best friend, Chuck Dixon. You know, who he who's hired me, you know, I got paid to do it, you know, uh, so I don't know what you're talking about. But he lumped me in with that. It, right or wrong, you know, uh, uh, as far as, you know, uh, Richard's perception, but uh, I had nothing to do with that. Uh, and as a result, I, I just went in hard. I said, well, if you if you're going to lump me in there, I'm going to check out these guys because they sound like 
people I'd like. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what I did. You know, I, 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 I accepted that and, uh, and, um, you know, came in hard on, on, on Comicsgate. And it, it's been more supportive than anything else. Uh, everybody in there helps and shares. Um, and it, it's been fantastic. I, I, I can't recommend their books and, and their, their platform enough. They're, they're, they're great people. Chuck, what has your experience been having to deal well, with I always all of say, this? I always say I'm the Jesus of Comics Gate because I was the first one to step out into the light. You know, I had to carry the cross up that hill for everybody. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was alone for a long time. You know, now I've got a lot of friends, <clears throat> you know, in the comic business because they've all been used and abused and uh, they're tired of the system. They were kicked to the curb. I mean, look at Graham. He's at the peak of his powers. You know, he should be a major force at the big two, but they, they don't recognize good art anymore. Um, so comics gate to me, isn't political at all. There's nothing political in the end product, uh, right. despite the personal politics. I don't even really know Richard Myers politics. They hate him because he, he dissed Mark Wade. I mean, <laughs> that's really he what it's all about. about, you know, and, and so, Mags Fasagio. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, but, but you know, those were sitting duck targets, uh, for anybody with, yeah. with a, with a grip on reality, but the, the, um, to me, Comicsgate is underemployed professionals serving underserved readers. You know, you got this huge audience of comic readers who stepped away from Marvel and DC because they couldn't stand what they were doing anymore, but they still want to read comics. Yeah. And, and Graham and me and Richard Meyer and Vox and Brian Polito and Ethan Van Skyver and all these other people were, were creating comics for them. Yeah. And the, the comics are not political in any way. No. You know, it, it, it's all about entertainment first. That's your sole job as, 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 a, as a professional is to entertain your audience. Now, that's not to say that there's not a place for political comics or even polemics, but you have to, you have to stand behind them. See, when they do it, they're, they're running the business into the ground because nobody wants to hear their crap, but then they blame the audience for that. They yeah. say you're you're a misogynist. You're you're anti. Uh, you're homophobic. You're you're this. You're that. And you're the other thing, because you won't buy their crappy books. Right. They won't stand behind it. Well, and the thing is, if they were able to present their political agenda in a way that was entertaining, uh, they would sell more. Yeah. But the, right. the, the, yeah. the craft is gone. Along the craft went out the window when the agenda came in. And the thing is, as far as the end product of all of our work being political. They see it as political because it's not woke. It's not in line with their politics, even when there's no politics. Right, right. It's not political enough for them. That's the yeah. real complaint. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really not even politics. It's ideology yeah. Yeah. that, that yeah. they're pushing. Yeah, uh, We've got a comment. Shadowhawk says, Graham is already a cornerstone of CG in my mind. I'm in for whatever he puts out. That applies to Chuck as well. Thank you, Shadowhawk. It says all about Thank good you. comics. That's the simple truth. Now, I, I, I look at this stuff, and I see what's been going on. And Chuck, you've said recently that it seems that DC and Marvel are in a suicide pact. Yeah. That that to me is a pretty good description. But you've got to know what's going on because a lot of people. I mean, comics. There are not a lot of people that read comics and they're familiar with the stuff in the TV shows and the movies and everything else. But how how do you turn that around at the publisher level? What needs to happen for DC and Marvel to get out of the spiral of sales? Because we just had this video that popped up from September of 2019. Again, before the pandemic and all of the lockdowns started shutting down so many comic book stores. You've got Kelly Sue DeConnick sitting there saying, well, I'm kind of worried because sales are down, stores are closing, all this. And this is before we had this big economic collapse. And people have been talking for years that the comics industry was doing great, but it's not. So no. how, how, do you, how do you get the, the people at DC and Marvel, because they're the big two, and people are going to be looking to them as an example of some things, how do you fix it? Well, unfortunately, you know, they float the boats, you know, uh, in, in, in the American comic book market, but nothing's going to change. It's the same people in charge 20 years. 
the only way I can see out, and it looks like it's heading that way, is for the parent companies, Warner's and Disney, to, to shut them down and just license the characters out to other comic publishers. Then you might see something interesting. Or you might see something just as bad. I don't know. But uh, I, I think they're heading that way. I mean, recently Marvel pulled the license from IDW. IDW. And the under, you know, basically the understanding inside the industry is they got a better offer than IDW. So um, I know that both companies have talked about shutting down the comics end, and I think it's going to happen. And that's really, you know, they're going to have to kill those companies to save them. You mentioned IDW. They just recently announced their deal with Penguin Random House for distribution not only of the book side of things, but also the monthly periodicals, the graphic novels, like DC has done, like Marvel has done. Now you've got IDW going with Penguin Random House. Are we in danger of developing another monopoly? If everybody goes to Penguin, leaving Diamond, it sounds like we're just going to be right back in the same boat because there's just going to be a single point of failure for distribution. I mean, well, granted, Penguin I, I, Random House I, is bigger than Diamond, so they could absorb it. But yeah, I, I I think that paradigm is changing. The whole thing about distribution uh, is 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 going to be, uh, I think, eventually circumvented uh, with uh, direct to consumer sales. Uh, retail sales are dying. Not just comics, but look at your local mall. You know, stores are closing. People aren't going out and buying stuff at malls and stores. You know, they're getting their stuff on Amazon and, and uh, eBay and, and various online uh, sellers. And uh, I think that that trend is here to stay uh, in many respects. Um, small towns are, are doing well with, uh, because they offer something else. They offer a, a, a personal touch in their sales. Uh, big, big box stores, not so much. And that goes the same for, you know, big box distribution of comics. You know, it, it, it waters down the value of these books uh, to the point uh, that the nobody's making money. Right. <laughs> You've got to sell so many yeah. uh, and print so many to make that price point low enough so that you can actually make a profit on it. Now, does that figure in as as far as the indie stuff? Because you, you're crowdfunding a book, you have a, a, a fixed amount that needs to happen in order to get the book printed and, and sent out. How are you calculating your break-even point? Is it per project, or you just have a, a blanket? Okay, if I've got 22 pages, I need this much money. If I've got 48 pages, I need this much. Is there a, is there a calculus for that at this point now? Because we've done a number of books, and there have been plenty of them out there that have made bank. You know, they've met or exceeded their goal, so is there now discussed amongst you some kind of a formula for the preliminary planning stage? Well, the, the, if, if you're smart, <clears throat> you'll have a baseline. Uh, you'll know exactly what it's going to cost to break even. But breaking even is no good. Nobody wants that. Right. You, know, you work really hard. Uh, at some of these projects take over a year to produce, print, and then uh, ship. Um, so... You have to bet, you have to hope for a, uh, a profit on it of some type, but you need to know what the, the bare minimum it is it's going to cost you so that you can at least raise that. But there's there's all different there's all different um, ways of, of of increasing your sales uh, that I'm not going to give away to everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Sci-Fi Snob asks, why would Chuck or Graham want to help the big the big two by giving them advice on how to fix themselves? That that does raise well, an interesting question. They wouldn't question. listen anyway. So it's true. But it does raise listen. a question. Is there I don't I don't want to say, you know, hurt feelings, but is there a certain amount of resentment when when you look at what happened there? Or have have you guys been able to move past it and just okay that just that happened okay we're done and finished and gone, I don't I don't expect that you're wishing harm on anybody at, at that point. But are are there creators that are now independent that are nursing a hurt? Well, I don't. I mean, 
th that doesn't do anybody good to to nurse uh, uh, things that you know happen to you, particularly if you've gone on and you're now successful doing what you're doing. Um, my resentment comes from the the destruction of an industry that I love, uh, of of companies that I revered and loved and wanted to work for from the time I was twelve years old. To see them uh, methodically. And, and almost purposefully be destroyed, uh, that makes me angry. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, yeah, I don't, when I first got in this business, I thought if I can have a five year window, I'll be happy, you know, because that's what you get. You, you, nobody's popular forever in comics. And I got about a 15 year window. I was very lucky, you know, and I continue to work and I continue to be in demand with publishers and stuff like that. So, I, you know, there's no looking back, but like Graham said, I mean, you know, when we came into the business, you had publishers and editors in chief who, who jealously guarded these characters, who jealously guarded these companies. You know, Jeanette Kahn, Paul Levitz, Jim Shooter. These are people that fought to, to, you know, keep these companies together, keep them relevant and all the rest and, and keep the quality up. And, you know, about the time Graham left and, and, and just before I left uh, mainstream comics, um, that was all gone. They, they, everybody was at DC and Marvel as a resume enhancer. They weren't there to help the company out. A lot of And the worst part is that the, uh, the, the editorial pool just got thinner and thinner. Well, it got dumber uh, and dumber. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I say thinner and thinner, I meant thinner and thinner in their knowledge of the business. Oh, yeah. Or how or, to... Or, yeah, or concern or any kind of conscientious behavior. I mean, just indifferent is what I would say. They were indifferent to the to the comics themselves. Now, yeah. is that can that be attributed to the editorial side of things? Those people also looking at comics as just a stepping stone to go someplace else? Because I've heard, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about, you know, people are writing these comic books to be the Netflix pitch. They're not writing them to be the comic book. This is just a means to an end. And it feels like there's a lot of that. I, I, I've heard that criticism quite a number of times from various different people. Is that is that an accurate way of, of looking at what's going on over there now? Do you mean editorially? Well, either editorially or on the creative side. Because the editors, you know, we see with like Heather Antos. I mean, she's been bouncing back and forth around on various different, different companies. Yeah. You know, it almost seems like uh, on on the editorial side, and I haven't tracked a lot of these people, but it feels like that they're just kind of going from one place to the next, wherever the wind takes them. There's no sense of loyalty. There's no there's no appreciation for the material at the place where they're working, you know. And and like Chuck says, there's a very thin understanding of the continuity, of the history of the characters. How far I, I, I how far does that go before the before the whole thing collapses in on itself? I I think it's simpler than that. I mean, they're bouncing around because they're incompetent. Uh, you know, they go from one publisher to the next not because they're they're you know trying to enhance. They're going because that's all they got. They got fired is what happened. Right. And uh, the the person you had mentioned continually gets fired from those positions. Um, that can only be incompetence, uh, not understanding the product, not understanding the business, and not understanding what it means to shepherd uh, a project through, uh, which is all part of uh, of what editors need, good editors need to do. You know, there was a training program back in the day. You know, Stan Lee begat uh, Roy Thomas and 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 Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and Jerry Conway and Archie Goodwin, and those guys begat the next group. But uh, the, the Mike Carlins, uh, well, there's Jim Shooter, too, and the list goes on and on. But eventually, people left the business, and they took those skills with them, and they did not pass them on. And it got watered down. By the time Danny O'Neill left, uh, and his team that he had trained, uh, the Scott Petersons and Darren Vincenzos, um, the, after that, they just got you know less and less skilled in understanding uh, what editorial editorial skills were needed yeah and, and on the creative end you saw the arrival of a new breed of writers that i call tourists 
they weren't comic book lifers. They weren't. They didn't really even necessarily like comics. It was a way to make a, a fast buck. Uh, they were like failed novelists who found they could make easy money in comics, or guys who were on their way to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And and the and guys on their way to Hollywood, they all looked like uh, extras from a CW show. Uh, <laughs> they were all the same. And in social settings where we would be talking about movies or comics or whatever, they would talk about their rep, uh, the pitch they had in, you know, what was going on at the networks, the pilot season, all stuff that had nothing to do with comics. Yeah. And I noticed this like in the 2000s. And it reflects in the work. They, they don't give a damn about comics. They, they never even learned how to write them. That's crazy. Now, is, is, are... are... Is the talent pool coming out of the Kubert School uh, worth mentioning? Is that is there some saving grace there, or are they are they not uh, not enough to to turn things around? Well, the Kubert School, uh, I could tell you from personal experience, turns out good artists, um, good storytellers, because that was that's the main thing is is how to tell a good story uh, at that school. Uh, but uh, you, you can only do so much as a freelancer. You're, you're being hired uh, as a pencil monkey, uh, to, to draw something with the dictates being coming from, from elsewhere. So, you know, no, the answer is no, that, uh, there's no hope or saving there other than visual storytelling, but stories as a whole and, 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 and publishing line plans, uh, are going to come from editorial. And, uh, I don't, I don't see a lot of talent there. Now, a lot of editors, I mean, this is true from, you know, the Image and Wizard magazine days of the 90s. Most editors, they don't know good art from bad art. They just knew who was hot and who wasn't. Yeah. You know, according to Wizard magazine. I mean, editors actually read that magazine as if it was reality. Uh, like, I mean, it was it was just the tiger beat of comics. You know? <laughs> and, and, they were, and they were reading it like, oh, this guy's hot and I got to get this guy, you know. I, I remember an editor called me once. You're Bobby Goldsboro. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, pe- I remember an, people an of an age are not going to know who that is, Graham. <laughs> well, if they know who Tiger Beat is, they'll know who Bobby Goldsboro is. Sean Gassett. If they laughed at that, they'll laugh at that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah exactly. But an editor called me once and said, you know that guy who's like number two on the wizard list? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, I got his brother. I'm like, first of all, I don't like that guy, and I can't imagine his brother's any more talented. <laughs> his Does, brother's not even on the list. <laughs> he's, not, he's not even on the list. Now, the demise of Wizard Magazine, did that have an impact at all in the industry as, as far as the you know quality and direction and, and knowledge, working knowledge of the business? Do we need something like that to come back? No. No, no, we didn't need it to begin with. All I right. think it was yeah. part of the death knell of sales because it, it turned the focus towards speculation. And it was just nonsense. It was nonsense from cover to cover. Uh, unfortunately, it was nonsense that people in the industry took seriously. I couldn't believe when editors would take that magazine seriously. See, these guys just smoke a lot of dope and, 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 and talk about stuff and write it down and put it in this magazine. Yeah. And yeah. none of it makes any sense. And, yeah. but you're, you're, it was popularity contests. Not, yeah. not not about skill. I mean, yeah. if, if Alex Toth never made that list, no. <laughs> Joe Kubert never made that list. Well, you it know? wasn't it wasn't even about sales because yeah. there was a there was a month where I literally wrote six of the top ten diamond books and right. I didn't make the list. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of lists, let's let's go over what you guys have been working on of late. This is Chuck Dixon's list over at Arkhaven. We've got several titles here. Um, plus you're working on, uh, how is Airboy going? Because you get a crowdfunder for that and, and yeah. is that still in the works? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's being lettered now. So, uh, we got it. It's all colored. It's, we're waiting on lettering and it's going to go to the printer. So we have is all that the one I did the cover for. And that was the, that was 51. This is where you actually did an issue 52. Ah, okay. Yeah. So, and then Graham's got his, we've got, uh, the Shadu Monster Island, and uh, these these are all we'll put the links on these uh, on these sites over in our show notes. Um, Graham, you've well, also got. One, I mean, those are those are those are previous projects. The current one is this one here. Alien, Alien Alamo. Alamo. How is that is, one doing right now? I just crossed one hundred and thirteen thousand dollars with over seventeen hundred backers. 
That's great. I got one thing to say about Alien Alamo, though. If I wrote you a script where you had to draw hundreds of alien crabs, you would have killed me. <laughs> <laughs> and here you wrote it for yourself. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. <laughs> now, there are some days where I'm like, oh, doggone it. <laughs> there's, no one, there's no one to blame but you. <laughs> How about a giant monster next time? <laughs> <laughs> a big, mechani big mechanical spider, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, we do. Uh, Eastland asks uh, an interesting question: Are we going to have a better business model for making and distributing physical comics? And we talked about uh, we talked about Penguin Random House. We talked about digital sales. Now you've got uh, you know all of all of you guys in the indie indie crowd are using your various different printers. You're doing your own fulfillment, and I know fulfillment is a challenge for a lot of people because you've got to pack them, you've got to ship them, you got to do all the postage and everything else. Um, I, I, do you see a time in the future where maybe there might be a company, because I know John Malin was working on a fulfillment service. I don't know how far along he is on that. Uh, RJ over at Critical Blast is, is setting up Critical Blast Logistics where everybody outside the United States can send their books to him, and he does the shipping within the continental U.S. to save on the international stuff. Is there a model that's emerging in the crowdfunded indie scene that seems to be working for everybody, or are we still too early in this? We're still too early in it. Um, the biggest hurdle is shipping. There's no two ways about that. Uh, shipping domestically isn't too bad, but as soon as you have to ship overseas, I mean, they just, England just put in a new VAT tax. Uh, which is making uh, shipping directly to them over there very, very expensive. Um, you know, you can get it for 10 bucks to just about anywhere anywhere in the continental U.S., uh, a Gemini mailer with a comic in it or, or a couple comics in it. Uh, but once you get it overseas, uh, it really goes up. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to figure that out. Um, if If you have a distribution site, let's say, in Europe, uh, and you have the books shipped directly there, and then they distribute it, um, you run into uh, uh, quality control issues. You, you, you don't know. Uh, and so that's, that's a big, big plus, because what we're really dealing with with crowdfunding is boutique comics. And that's the way you have to look at it. We're, we're producing a boutique product. I mean, you can buy a floppy anywhere, a right. Batman, Superman floppy. But the advantage of the crowdfunding and, and what I think is so attractive to, to backers is that it, it allows you an inner window. It allows you to be part of the process. They, they, the, the backers are helping to make this thing happen. And they have constant access and immediate access to the creators. If somebody has a question for me, it comes right to me and I answer it immediately. Um, you know, if they have a suggestion, I get it immediately, you know. Uh, so it's that it's that back and forth between creators and backers that is so connective uh, uh, that uh, and and all the other goodies that go along with stretch goals and all that mm -hmm. for collectors. We're creating something, a boutique product for a collector's market. Uh, so that's what separates us uh, from the price point of, of Marvel and DC, but it also separates us in the quality of the product as well. Uh, does that have an impact, though, because you know, you talk about Wizard and the and the whole collectibles thing and that mentality where comic books used to be for kids, now they're for speculators. It's almost where you have you know, how many how many different variant covers you want to collect them all and and get the card set and everything. Is there a danger with uh, the crowdfunded model doing going that same route? Because if if the crowdfunded model becomes about the, the swag, the action figures, the trading cards, the, the collector coins or whatever, is there a danger that it affects the quality of the work on the book? I would argue that it, it, it isn't about that. It, it is about the book. The other stuff is ancillary to it. Okay. Uh, it it's just um, extra goodies that, you know, if you bought in at a comic book on day one for $25, you're getting the comic book. Okay. Now, 30 days later, different stretch goals get hit. You're still backer number one for $25, but now for that $25, you're getting that book. You're getting maybe extra content pages. You're getting a, a bookmark, a sticker, 
all those other things for that initial investment. So the better the project does and the higher it goes, the better everybody benefits from it. Right. Uh, but people get into it not because of the goodies, because they could look at a stretch goal at 75000 and it's day one. That seems like a long ways away to get that minted coin or whatever it is at, at, at that stretch goal level. So it, it really is about the book and about the creator and, and the product that they produce that get the backers in. Now, the Johnny-come-latelys that come in at the end of projects as, as they're about to fulfill you know, and get all the goodies too, you know, maybe they're more about the collectibles because they didn't back it in the, in, in, from the get-go. But, right. you know, c'est la vie. Is is there a possibility? Is there potential in the beginning? E- Eastland was asking about distribution because Ethan, I know prints extras that he sells on his eBay store, and I imagine that there are others who do that kind of thing. Do we see any time in the future a central hub for crowdfunded books? Like, say, you print some extras, you make them available through this one website. You can order from you know. Uh, Chanu and Alien Alamo and and Downcast and you know all of these other titles that you can pick and choose from this one catalog online is that a possibility excuse me is that a possibility at some time in the future you think I don't know it seems like you're introducing a gatekeeper where we don't need one how so I don't know it's just like a choke another choke point another comic book choke point you know, I mean, someone like Graham and Ethan and guys like that, I mean, doing successfully on their own, they don't need that. Right. Uh, some, some, you know, secondary outfit, some ancillary outfit to come in and start offering to distribute the stuff. But, yeah, and, and all that's going to do is is make it more difficult to find mine. Uh, if, if, yeah. if you've got, you know, 30 or 40 different crowdfunded books at this central hub, well, now you're now it's like you're at a newsstand and you're fighting for that space to be seen whereas if they just go to compasscomics.com they can find the stuff right there right you know i mean i i I did a diamond trade show back in the 80s and i was working for eclipse and i was there for eclipse my trip was paid for by eclipse and uh we were supposed to do a presentation and somebody some exec from diamond said now say this and say this and say this and say this and i said i don't work for you i work for dean mulaney and he says you all work for me (laughs) <laughs> and that's the situation we don't want to set anything like that up i, I wouldn't right. want to be part of it well and i was just thinking from a standpoint of if i go if i go and i'm looking for i'm looking for Cyberfrog, for example i find this place and oh look here's all these other books and and maybe that's one of those spillover i i'm looking for this one but i also find this one because you know like like you said graham with your example of the of the newsstand if I'm going in looking for a Superman book and over here is a new Buck Rogers from Howard Chaikin, oh, hey, I didn't know this was out. I'm going to be looking. It's, it's, a, it's the browsing mentality. And, of course, yeah, it does, it does start to limit because who, how do you decide what to include? So I can see where you would go with the, with the gatekeeping stuff like that, too. So um, I don't know. It just, it just feels like there's a lot of there are a lot of people who back multiple books. But it seems like every now and again, there's somebody who's, who sits there and goes, oh, I didn't know that book was out. I didn't know you were funding. I didn't know you were crowdfunding. I didn't know about this title. And I guess that's more of a word of mouth marketing issue than it is anything else at this point. Yeah. Uh, and for those few times that it happened, it's not worth the risk of right. lowering the value of your product. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, the thing to, to remember is is we're creating a, a boutique comic. And if we give it to somebody else to distribute and they sell it under what the backers paid for it, mm-hmm. that's unconscionable to me. Uh, if they want to sell it up priced, that's one thing. But nobody should get it at a lower price than the backers. Mm-hmm. Well, currently funding Alien Alamo. Well, it's in demand. Let, let me let me correct myself there. That means what, funding. What is what is Alien Alamo about for anybody who maybe has missed it and hasn't heard about it? Okay. 
Well, uh, it, it's 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 all part of my Nolan MonsterVerse. Okay, so the first book was the Chinoo. This is Alien Alamo. The next book is going to be uh, the Ghosts of Metacumba Key. Uh, so I'm creating this this world of monsters and horror that are not sequels, but they're all interconnected. So having said that, uh, this story takes place on 1957 in 1957 on a uh, Texas ranch called the Alamo, and it's about the relationship of a father and son. He is a uh, um, kind of a damaged war veteran from World War II, uh, from what he had seen and done in the Pacific, and he's having trouble relating to his son uh, until another war is brought to his his doorstep, and that's a, a, an alien invasion. And the two of them have to reconcile their relationship and and and, and basically save the world uh, from this uh, this crab-like invasion of of, of creatures. It it feels just looking at at some of this artwork. It feels a little bit like you've got some some War of the Worlds influences here with the with the um, the shooting stars becoming the 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 alien invaders type of thing. You know? Sure. And, I mean that's the original alien invasion story. <laughs> right. And how long how long does this stay in demand before you shut it down completely? Uh, well, it can stay in demand forever as long as it continues to get backers. Uh, but I shut my my uh, my campaigns down when I'm ready to start fulfilling. That way, I get my my final numbers okay. uh, for everything. So, the projected date on this is December. Uh, but uh, I've added more pages to it at no extra cost uh, because I felt that uh, the story needed it to expand it a little bit. So, you know, that's another uh, a goodie that all my backers get is they're getting more content. Mm -hmm. And Chuck, I'm looking here. I see a, no, a couple of different ones that are funding that have got your name on it. Airboy 52, uh, Knife Hand Blind Spot, uh, both of them in demand. Is there one in particular that, that needs the attention over the other? You want to look at both of them? Uh, yeah, let's look at both of them. I mean, the mm -hmm. Airboy 52 continues my Eclipse run from the 80s uh, as if it never was interrupted and, and we introduce a new air boy in this issue an air a new air to the air boy try to bring it uh up to contemporary times <clears throat> and uh you know air boy's a character i love he's a golden age character i had you know he, he was my earliest success in comics when i first got in and uh it, it, the character led to me getting the robin assignment uh, at dc comics because denny o'neill read my air boy and liked it so just Going back to do the same thing, going back to the same shop, and uh, you know, as I as I said earlier, it's it's in the lettering stages now. It's been colored, the art's all done, so we're getting ready to go. That's where Chuck and I met too. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Graham used to do the Skywolf backups in Airboy and did a couple of covers. Just one, just one cover. Just one. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. And I how long? See it in my head. How long is this one going to be in demand? I have no idea. I don't. I don't look at any of that stuff. <laughs> And the, the other one here, Knife Hand Blind Spot. This is uh, this is another one from Richard Meyer. You guys did the Expendables Go to Hell with Stallone. Right. How involved right. How involved was Sylvester Stallone in that particular project? Well, he basically gave me the plot, and and then we ran with it. And then we showed him everything as it went along, and he would just say, "Hey, awesome! That's great! Keep going! You know, I'm loving it." You know, so that was, but, but he did give me the plot. He, he wanted to do it as a movie. And I, I told him that's, they're never going to green light a movie like that. That's crazy. <laughs> I said, but it would make an incredible comic. I said, can I run with that? And he said, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And so, knife and blind spot is in the jawbreakers universe. Uh, yeah, but um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm a stretch goal on that one. Uh, oh, okay. there's a, there's a backup feature, uh, called, I, I think it's called battalion. Garrison. It's called Garrison. It's by me and Sergio Cariello. I think that's the one that's included in in, in this one. Uh, I did yeah. another thing called um, there it is right Capture there. or Kill with Bob C. Harden. So is, is Garrison in part of this campaign? It does look like it is, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a G.I. Joe parody. Oh, but, okay. Uh, Richard came up with the idea that, you know, what if uh, like the animated G.I. Joe characters ran into actual Muslim terrorists? And, and that's the basis of the story. <laughs> So I got to make up all these crazy G.I. Joe characters and, and their gimmicks and their names. It was a lot of fun. 
So where do people find you guys on the web? Well, I'm at uh, uh, compasscomics.com. Uh, I'm also on YouTube under Graham Nolan. I do a, a Wednesday a show every Wednesday called uh, the uh, the Storytellers, where I interview um, uh, basically the greats of the comic business. Um, Thursdays I have another show with other pros called the Professionals, uh, and then uh, come October first I begin my annual Thirty One Days of Monsters, where uh, I stream every day about a different monster movie. And talk about that. Also, I'm on Facebook, of course, under Graham Nolan, and uh, uh, on Twitter. And Chuck, you're on YouTube as well. Yeah, channels is called Chuck Dixon. I got a show uh, called Ask Chuck Dixon every Wednesday. I answer questions from people who submit them, and I just started a new show on Mondays called What You Watching, where I just talk about movies and TV shows that I've been watching. Uh, for some reason, people like my opinion on those things. <laughs> and uh, I'm also at ChuckDixon.net, where there's a lot of uh, like artwork from the vaults, unpublished comic stories, movie reviews, things like that. All right. Well, gentlemen, we've uh, we've gone past our hour. I know you guys have a lot of other things that you've got to get done and projects to work on and pages to put out. So we're going to wrap this up. Thank you very much for being here. This was this was time well spent, and we didn't even touch on Robin, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is probably for the best given the circumstances, right? Next time, next time, <laughs> same back channel. All right, so I do want to thank everybody in the chat, Eastland. I see Hex Allen in there, Sci-Fi Snob. Uh, who else? Uh, I saw Shadowhawk, Nando Iron, and is that everybody? No, I think I saw somebody else. Robert Keeley Chow. Kami Mark, Nerdette's Newsstand, all of you, thank you for being here. If you are watching this in replay, you are welcome to leave a comment and share your thoughts. You can always send us an email, live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom and we will put the links so you can connect with Chuck and Graham at their various different online presences, and uh, we'll do this uh, again very soon, I hope, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll see what transpires then. So. I'm back Alien Alamo. Don't make me come after you. <laughs> <laughs> do it. He will. <laughs> and in the meantime, we do invite you to subscribe to our channel here and have the notifications turned on. We are very slowly creeping toward 2,000 subscribers. And this is where you will find the largest and most current uh, list of conventions anywhere on the web. And we also are doing updates on the regular for uh, vaccination and mask policies as well as schedule changes. So stay tuned for all of that. Coming up on Saturday, we've got a brand new Good Morning Multiverse. We'll be interviewing Laura Hart, who's uh, with the Skirball Cultural Center in Los Angeles, talking about their uh, new Star Trek exhibit as well as we'll have all of the headlines for the week and the weather forecast for cities hosting conventions next weekend. So lots of stuff going on here, lots of videos that you can check out. We talked about Babylon 5 on the H2O podcast last uh, Monday night, and uh, so you can check that out as well. So uh, uh, subscribe if you haven't already, share it with your friends, inflict us on your enemies, have your notifications turned on. We'll do this all again tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. Remember, there are four lights. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.